everybody, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Compliant with Alliant, um, COVID Special Edition. Uh, Diana and I are here yet again. Hi, everyone. And before we before we launch into it, I just want to make a note that um, we know as we get further and further into this, there are more of you out there who are being impacted directly or know somebody who's impacted, whether it be you know from a health perspective or financially, that this is serious business and a serious time. And we're thinking about you, and we hope that in our little sliver of the world, we can provide um, some clarity and some guidance. So with that, we're going to talk about today about the Families First Coronavirus Act regulations. Yeah, at this point, I just want to add that I really had a terrible week here, Chris. Oh, yeah, Diana did have a terrible week. I mean... Her being healthy notwithstanding, um, yes, she did. Um, the regulations came out on Wednesday, is that right? Yeah, it, it was noon on Wednesday, and they are just um, a quagmire. They are long, they are confusing. Um, it's hard to print things these days, but yeah, I made, made for a little bit of a long week. <laughs> it is. Um, I've been saying, and this is going to sound flippant, and, and again, understand that, that the gravity of the, the, the entire situation is very clear to me, but... It's like back when the ACA was here, except for with the pallor of death and financial ruin on it as well. Yeah, and and again, with the we don't ever mean to make light of these things, um, a lot of how I kind of move through this is just by sort of focusing on work and one foot in front of the other, and then that it just is a, it's been helpful for me to move through it. Yes, and thank goodness that she is, because um, as, as Diana noted, the, uh, the regulations were a quagmire. We were sort of going back and forth on a number of issues. And so let's just going to jump into them, and we're we're not going to retread some of the issues that we've already talked about that are largely the same, but we did want to hit what are the important tweaks that are going to impact employers directly. As a level set, we're talking again about the two new paid leave provisions under the FFCRA, as I'm going to call it as we move throughout this, one of which is uh, the paid sick leave provision, which in the regs they call the emergency paid sick leave, so EPSL is what we're going to start calling it. And so recall that employees can take EPSL for up to 80 hours, 10 days, two weeks, um, for six different reasons, and I'll run through those really quickly, where the employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail here quickly. Um, the employee has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine due to concerns related to COVID-19, is actually experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and seeking a medical diagnosis, and is caring for an individual who is subject to an order as described in number one, that's federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order. And number five is caring for his son or daughter whose school or place of care has been closed or whose child care provider is unavailable also due to COVID or experiencing, and this is this still yet unknown, substantially similar condition as specified by HHS, which they have not done so yet. So there are those six provisions, the top three of which are paid at 100%, the bottom three are paid at two-thirds, and obviously we're going to talk a little bit more about how this co coincides with the emergency or the expanded FMLA provisions in just a moment. So let's talk, let's launch into sort of what we see as one of the first big issues. 
Well, and I just want to remind everyone that when we talk about these new uh, Families First Coronavirus Response Act paid leaves, we are talking about employers with fewer than 500 oh, employees. Yes. Just always remember that because this is um, it's such pervasive stuff now. But you you might not be covered if you have more than yeah. 500 employees. Yeah, no, exactly. But yeah, so the interesting thing to me going through these regs again, so comprehensive, so much in there that when I pulled back on it, I, I almost couldn't see. The minute, you know, tell the difference between the minutia and the technical corrections, um, tell those apart from the bombs that they were dropping. And so, just let's start with the first big bomb. And that one was for EPSL. The regulations confirm that this is basically a one bite at the apple entitlement, it is a per person entitlement and not a per job or per employer entitlement. So, if somebody has taken their 80 hours, at a prior employer, when they move to you, they do not get another 80 hours. I mean, How you would ever know that? Well, it remains to be seen, but that's the rule. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they clean that up. But that one was the first thing. And I I mean, I guess I, I was surprised by that a little bit. But then what's the alternative in a world where people are changing jobs frequently? And this is an immediate entitlement. My next... Oh, uh, still me? Yeah. Um, well, this one's not nearly so so shocking or exciting, but we did want to talk about um, how the regulations defined a quarantine or isolation order. And basically, they defined it very broadly. Uh, you know, anytime um, you have a state or a local stay-at-home order, that's going to fall within this definition. So that's very, very helpful. I know that... Um, where certain states have been enacting their own leave yeah. requirements, there's been just perseveration over do those right. state paid entitlements that apply to certain quarantine or isolation, or are, do are they covered by what's happening right now? And so, thankfully, DOL cleared that up for us. So that yeah. was that was good news, but I I wasn't shocked by it that. It is helpful, and I think it under um, it's an example of something we saw underscored throughout the regulations, which is. The interpretation should be broad here in a lot of different capacities because they want these provisions to apply broadly because obviously they are intended to help get us through this this point in time. So another um, important note is who qualifies as as an individual, and I'm going to go back to that level set. Recall that um, reason number four for taking paid sick leave is to care for and it says individual, which, you know, is a little on the broad side, who is subject to an order as described in, you know, a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order, um, or has been advised to self-quarantine. So to care for an individual under those circumstances. And when we read that, I went, huh, that's a little broad. Um, and they really put a little bit of some rails around this on, you clearly just can't take this paid sick leave to, to care for somebody with whom you have no personal relationship. The individual must be an immediate family member, someone who lives with you, resides with you generally most of the time, and that's what the FAQ says, um, or a similar person with whom the employee has a relationship that would create an expectation. So let's say you have, you're in you know, a personal relationship, a boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, partner, whatever the case may be, you don't reside together, but there's an expectation that you would take care of that person were they um, needing it. Um, and also the, the individuals, it's kind of a no-duh moment, but I guess it, you know, they actually need, um, they actually have to need the care. <laughs> so, I mean, they say it, so I thought I should say it too. Um, and then I'm going to kick it over to Diana to talk about something that like literally... We bang our head against this wall until it's bloodied. 
Oh, on uh, every on front, every but front. maybe no more so than right here. I mean, I think I was texting you, Chris, mm-hmm. at, at very, well, I was going to say late at night, but it was early hours in the morning on, there are conflicting provisions on page, page this, Yeah, page And then I'm like, does page 97 resolve it? Because we always have this issue when we look at, can an employer require use of existing PTO either before a leave entitlement begins or during a leave entitlement where someone isn't receiving full pay to top off. And when we pull back on this, remember, there are only three EPSL reasons where you might be earning two-thirds of pay. And one of them, number six, it doesn't exist yet because that's when the Secretary of HHS designates a substantially similar condition, which they have not done yet. I think they're just, you know, putting a pin in that for hopefully not (laughs) our... perpetuity. Yeah, Yeah. not our next global pandemic. But, you know, four and five are you're caring for the individual, like Chris just talked about. And then for the school or childcare closures. Right. So those are the only ones we're worried about. And as, as much perseverating as I did over this, um, we did figure out the rule. The, uh, we had FAQs come out later that then helped clarify what the reg actually said. So basically, um, when we are looking at EPSL, an employer cannot require you to ever use existing PTO first, and they cannot require you to top off. So if you're having two-thirds of wages, they cannot make you top off during the EPSL portion. You and your employer may agree to allow top off, but your employer cannot Mm -hmm. require the use of top off. I think in another podcast, I kind of described it as sort of there are three scenarios, right? Um, Can you be forced to, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Can they force you to? Um, which I think is the same thing. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's, there's only two. two. <laughs> and are you allowed to? But I think I framed it up in three different capacities, and I'm sure that you know I can remember that at some point. But you know, the, the question is, must you, right, or are you permitted to? And I don't want to do a spoiler here, but why? Yeah, what's the spoiler. Well, I can't help it. You, you know, I mean, just after so much time on this, I, I really can't help myself. Later, when we talk about EFMLA. They are allowing employers to require top off, but only you just the whole thing. That's my section. Oh, we can now hit I'm that. Done. I think we could hit this again and again and again, <laughs> but only for that latter potential ten weeks. Okay, do you want to just go there? Now? <laughs> I mean, you're the one who makes this go in order. <laughs> no, I want you to talk about notice and oh, documentation. Okay, well, so there's very you know there are set forth documentation requirements. Um, you know, they're lockstep. You know, requiring what they require um, for both paid sick leave and paid, or yeah, paid sick leave and paid FEMLA. I'm never probably ever going to turn over to calling it EPSL and whatever. But um, at any rate, the good news is that we have a model form and we're going to make that available and you can have at that. But understand that you do have to have documentation from the employee. Um, okay, so, oh, this is mine, even though Diana stole it. Um, well, you've got to give us a little bit of an EFEMLA level set. Oh, I forgot. Okay, so... EFEMLA, as it's now required to be called, uh, requires covered employers to provide up to 12 weeks of leave if an eligible employee is unable to work um, or telework because of that reason that we see also in paid sick leave, which is to care for a son or daughter if their school or place of care has been closed or the provider or care provider is, not, is unavailable due to COVID, essentially. And the first two weeks of EFEMLA are unpaid, obviously, with the intent that EPL kind of 
plugs in there. And so this is how this unpaid forcing top off issue really uh, becomes germane. So um, do you, I guess we're going to. Well, I can talk about how EFMLA interacts with other FEMLA leave entitlements. And there was a tremendous amount of confusion here. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this a new entitlement that doesn't take away from your existing 12 weeks um, or not? And some of that confusion was because throughout um, the statute, they talk about how uh, these can't take away from other entitlements. But then in subsequent FAQs, uh, regulators came out and they clarified that this new eFEMLA is one of your 12-week entitlements. And if you have used other FEMLA, um, you are, that counts against this entitlement. So if you have already used 10 weeks of normal 12-week FEMLA, um, you only have two potentially left for EFMLA. So that was interesting. But one thing that I like that the regulations did, they confirmed that point, but they also sort of said, hey, we want everyone to remember that there might not be overlap here. Mm-hmm. The who's eligible? An eligible employee under normal FEMLA is worked for you for 12 months, 1,250 hours. Yep. Um, eligible employees here, 30 yep. days of employment. There's going to be a batch here that are eligible yeah. for this that otherwise wouldn't be eligible for standard FMLA. I mean, covered employer. If mm-hmm. FEMLA is 50 or more here, we're fewer than 500. So just remember that they might not always match up. Mm-hmm. So just keep a, a look or take a close look at, you know, what the FEMLA leave entitlement is. But do know that eFEMLA... Um, Entitlements are reduced by prior use of FEMLA. The last thing that I thought was really interesting um, that they did in the regulations was they said that your eFEMLA entitlement will not reset when the standard 12-month FEMLA year cycle Mm -hmm. um, resets. So employers run a FEMLA year. It's usually not your calendar year. It's 12 months look back. Yeah. Um, So you just know that when that clock comes back around, your FEMLA year resets, you do not get a new entitlement for for eFEMLA. So that one was interesting. But so, again, these are limited duration provisions. These expire um, December 31st. And so we want to just be mindful of that. Yeah, and I think um, depending on who your FMLA vendor is, if you outsource that, that's something you'll want to talk to them about, especially this sort of overlap. Sometimes it overlaps, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and if you're administering that in-house, obviously that's going to present some administrative challenges for you. So on the use of other PTO, uh, we talked about this. We sort of spoiled it, but, you know, in the interest of not bearing the, the lead for that 10 weeks that's paid at two-thirds the rate of pay, the employer can force the top off during that period of time. So obviously, if we if we tease this out a little bit, right, if there's somebody, if employer wants to get some of that PTO liability off of its books, it can force employees to take it. Whereas, again, remember those first two weeks under EPSL, they cannot force the PTO use. They can agree to it, but they can't force it. Yeah, you know what I think is interesting there, too, is that we have to remember maybe an employee already exhausted their EPSL for mm-hmm. another reason. So that's, again, we just have to keep juggling all of those different things. That's right, exactly. Um, okay, so I think we're, we're sort of moving on to some provisions that are key and important that are applicable to both of the paid leave mandates. A small employer exemption, which I found this to be a little bit of a, like quietly kind of dropping a little bit of a bomb on small employers because there was 
you know, there, to me, there was a thought that there would be an under 50 carve out in full. Oh, I thought there would be. And that's not what's happening here. So the carve out for employers with fewer than 50 employees, they are exempt from the requirement under both EPSL and expanded FEMLA where, um, and they have to have, you know, the, the paid leave would, um, you know, cause you know, expenses and financial obligations to exceed the business revenue, blah, 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 blah. It would be financial hardship to provide the leave. Essentially, the one reason to care for your child because the school is closed, the daycare facility is closed, or the, the child care provider is unavailable. That's the only carve-out for small employers under 50. So when we go back to those other five reasons, really four, um, small employers are obligated to provide the paid sick leave. Yeah, it's, it's not much of a carve-out there, so I was a little um, surprised by that. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know... That's the way it is. There's a tax credit for it. Um, either way, if you avail yourself of that of that leave, you have to you know document it as a small employer um, that it's a financial hardship. But yeah, that was a little less broad than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and they hinted that it was going to be broader. Mm-hmm. So I guess we all kind of you know feel a little bit like the rug got pulled out from under those small employers. Yep. Um, and, and so another key provision. Yeah, this was another one where you know I I. When when this was first clarified, I actually called Christine and I was a little surprised by it, but it's fairly commonsensical. Mm-hmm. Did I just make that word up? No, I mean, I think people say it, but I don't think it's a word. Okay, not a real word. <laughs> um, here is the provision that applies across the board to EPSL and EFMLA, and I will use those acronyms religiously no, now. she's forced them on me. Already. I will force Chris to use them too. Um, there must be work available that you are unable to do mm-hmm. because of a qualifying reason. If your employer has shuttered, if there is no work, right. you don't get these. You right. got unemployment insurance. So that was one that I think it, it just, coming back to that, I think is just important to remind people. Well, you kind of have to think through all these varying scenarios. And I think I had I had arrived there because I had the lucky task of putting together that wretched chart that we put together. Oh, like, that was a horrible chart. And that I made Diana look at with me. <laughs> and you had to kind of run through sort of what are the different scenarios. And so if you're on a furlough because there is no work, neither of these are available to you. Yeah. Um, that feel When we say it, it feels intuitive, but you really do kind of have to think through it given um, just the particular circumstances. So... Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about healthcare providers or emergency responders? Essentially, how it could just be almost anybody. Oh, I'm a hundred percent sure it's, right. it's everyone. Right. But this was interesting, and I think it again. I mean, it's, it's common sense um, because when we talk about an exemption for healthcare providers and emergency responders, um, it's basically saying that employers cannot give either leave to these classes of employees. Because we basically need boots on the ground yeah. from them. And so I, that's where I feel like it's it's more common sense. But again, mm-hmm. it, it's um, the breadth with, with which they defined, sure. especially healthcare providers, mm-hmm. it's expansive. Um, yeah. And when they started at it, and I think that um, FFCRA actually defers back to FEMLA, mm-hmm. the FEMLA definition is, is not totally narrow. It's more narrow than this. <laughs> but it's a lot more yeah. narrow than this. I mean, we are talking about... Um, 
anyone employed at a doctor's office, hospital, nursing facility, retirement facility, pharmacy. Um, Phlebotomist. I mean, oh yeah, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, like... it goes on. At, so if you were employed by an entity that contracts with any of those other entities, so you can see how the breadth of this could really just go wide. Well, right. I mean, I think, again, when we look at it holistically, um, we need the system to function at full capacity and more. And so this is dovetailing with that obviously very acute need. Um, okay. Oh, so, real yeah. quick, emergency responders. I mean, mm-hmm. similar, just really broad breadth there. And we have like every covered class uh, updated in our FAQ now. But we're, you know, it's obviously um, firefighters, EMS, like public works. It's, folks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, child welfare workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot in there. So just yeah. take a look at that definition if you're curious. Okay. So um, moving on to benefit, I was going to make a joke there about. Anyway, I'm not going to. I'm going to move on. <laughs> so I didn't overshare. Um, okay, so benefits continuation. We've been talking a lot about this internally and with our, you know, our clients and our, our, our consultants, uh, because obviously this is where we live. Um, and EP, both EPSL and EFMLA require the continuation of group health plan benefits. That's not at all surprising because that's you know required under standard FEMLA. You know, the employees don't lose eligibility. They still have to pay their portion of the premium. Well, and my point on this with um, EPSL is nobody loses benefits eligibility when they take, you know, two weeks of sick time or two weeks of vacation. You don't kick people off the plan. Exactly. But they confirmed that. So nice. But then Diana and I really kind of fell down a rabbit hole on Section 125, which is a morass. You can kind of do that on... Well, so is that is that a per, you know a reason to change your benefit election under Section 125? Because as we all know, you can enroll on and off the plan, which is a separate issue from your Section 125 election. And if you've fallen asleep, we're sorry. So again, when when um, I don't want to call us nerds, are we nerds? Well, I think it's clear. Okay, so when yeah. we look at this, we read the law, and it says benefits continuation is required. But then there's a second provision that says. Employees can choose not to retain group health plan coverage, and they are entitled to reinstatement then when they come back. So I'm like, well, I guess that's a drop event. That's right. Yeah. Is it a drop event? Thank you for clarifying that because it does say, yeah, they can. You know, if they just decide not to, they can come back and reinstate. And so there's really nothing in the Section 125 regs right now that specifically allow that. I tried to shoehorn it into a couple of the existing ones, but. Anyway, I think, and this is what I've been saying to a lot of folks, and I will have deny having said it even though it's not here on a podcast, <laughs> is that I, I'm not losing tons of sleep over the Section 125 status change rules right now. You, you um, don't think the IRS is going to descend in a helicopter here? I, I don't right now, but I could be proven wrong. I hope that I won't. Well, um, I think we're just, you know, IRS will have an FAQ that comes out at some that's point. Exactly, and that's what we kind of work through is I'm like, okay, well, do, are we going to see something from the IRS? Let's hope. Hopefully we're not the only nerds in town thinking about this. Oh, um, and, and just really quickly, we know when employees don't lose eligibility for benefits, um, how they pay for benefits is going to be just how they they sort of standardly would have. If the leave is paid, it's a payroll deduction. Mm-hmm. If it's unpaid or there's not enough pay, um, we default to our FEMLA rules, uh, pay as you go, pay in advance, pay on return. My incredibly mm-hmm. strong recommendation here is pay post-tax as As you go. go. That will save you all the headaches later. Absolutely. Um, Okay, I had one more thing. Oh, real quick on record-keeping requirements. Oh, yeah. you got to keep your records for four years. Keep those records for four years. you're also going to need them for the tax credit, which is something I'm going to talk about where I'm going to make Diana talk about with me in another podcast. Um, But, yeah, you need those records to, um, if nothing else, Certainly for the tax credit, which you will want if you are providing this. So 
Thank you for joining us. Stay well, stay healthy.